This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been bringing you big ideas in little concentrated doses from some of the most creative thinkers around. On Think Again, we step outside of our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected clips from Big Think's archives ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. Today, I'm very, very happy to be joined by actor, writer, and director Alton Brown. Let me say that again, it's Alton. Yeah, I'm, not an, it's Alton. I'm not an actor as far as I know. <laughs> oh, well, they call you that on IMDb. And so, they do? Yeah, well, yeah, they, yeah, They probably shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> no, I, well, I mean, you, you did voice uh, on The Simpsons, didn't you? It was on The Simpsons, and I've done voice work on Disney projects. That's where I'm going today, So actually. you're an actor. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a cook. I'm just a cook. All right. So, cook, writer, and director, Alton Brown, a living legend in food TV. And you may not be aware that he was the cinematographer for the video for R.E.M.'s The One I Love when he was a film student. He was the creator and host of the show Good Eats, which ran for 14 seasons on food. 14 years. 14. Yeah. I don't, we don't even know how many seasons it was. Okay, it was countless seasons and, and countless 14 long, seasons. amazing years on Food Network and has a 9 out of 10 rating on IMDb, which is basically unheard of. Casablanca, by contrast, is 8.6. <laughs> He's also known as the host of Iron Chef America, Cutthroat Kitchen, and Feasting on Asphalt. He's the author of many books. And his latest book is Everyday Cook, One Word, in which he shares his favorite personal recipes, including the amazing looking breakfast carbonara, which I will be making forthwith, which makes pasta for breakfast not only okay, but it seems to me mandatory. Welcome to Think Again, Alton. Thank you very much. <laughs> After that very long... No, that was great. I, a longer introduction means you're getting something done, I guess. <laughs> um, so, okay, I have a bunch of questions for you. Let's okay. start with... Um, you know, your book, Everyday Cook, the tagline is, this time it's personal, because these are these are recipes you've created, yes? Yeah. And I wondered whether there are any interesting or fun or quirky or strange stories behind any specific recipe. They all look amazing. I want to make that bourbon uh, bread pudding, ASAP, the carbonara. Um, interesting stories. You know, I think that whenever you're trying to paint a self-portrait, uh, you have to question some of the things that, that you do. Um, okay. and, and I think that, you know, you take your food, your kind of everyday food, and, and try to translate it into a, a book-worthy recipe. It's always an illuminating um, activity. I, I didn't realize how much I cooked <laughs> things with, with alcohol. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have to take a real close look at myself. I didn't realize, wow, I really am drinking a great deal. And how really bad I am at certain things. Um, Such as? Well. 
Oddly enough, you know what the most frustrating <laughs> recipe in this book, it, it was something that I was like, well, I do this every day, so it's gonna be easy to write down and get right. And we started testing it. It was actually working out the procedure for cold brew coffee because you okay. realize that people's tastes become far more challenging. You know, a, a few years ago, you could say, oh, here's cold brew. Right. People have said, oh, okay. Now you say, well, here's cold brew. And they're like, oh, well, you know, the cold brew over, blah, blah, blah. And this was it. They're all right. of a sudden so much more knowledgeable and their, their tastes are so much more developed and they're picky. Uh, about yeah. things like that. So I, I realized that, oh my God, I, I, I haven't tested this enough. It's not working 100% of the time. And gosh darn it, you know, I really need to make sure that these notes are coming out of this. And it, we, I had to do it over and over and over and over for something that I thought was going to be a throwaway punk shot, easily done. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think when I think about kind of the history of food entertainment, um, I think, you know, these trends come up. You suddenly everyone, salt is the thing or whatever is sure, the thing. Sure. But I guess also there is this thing of people getting more and more sophisticated yes yeah. and then so then what as do you... consumers as consumers and 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 that go ahead right. you, no you, no no please no go ahead it, it's a big it's a big deal because you know people now understand um oh gee that's Spanish saffron in there, isn't it? You know, you're right. like, oh my gosh, we are so good at grocery shopping. We are so knowledgeable as eaters, even people that can't cook, which right. is interesting. It's like someone can't scramble eggs, but can, uh, you know, make critical analysis of uh, caramel, you know? Uh, right. And so it's, it's an interesting time to be writing um, about food and certainly developing recipes because expectations are high. And so it's, with a book like this, it's not that I'm worried that people won't have success with the recipes is that they'll think less of me because of how I eat. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like this, for the first time I'm writing a book that's actually food that I eat. I'm not trying to prove any points. I'm not writing for science. This right. is just my food. And I'm afraid people are going to look at it and say, well, gee, you're kind of, you're a simpleton, aren't <laughs> that's you? Not that you're, that's actually not that, you're where's not as interesting as we thought you were. Where's the molecular Yeah, where's the molecular gastronomy? Yeah, There's right. no freaking molecular gastronomy. <laughs> I mean, in, in as much as that, yeah, I'm not making spherifications and, you know, flavored smoke <laughs> and stuff like that. This is just food, you know? Right, right, right. Um, but although I have to say, like, you know, that's refreshing as well. And probably everyone is always going to be interested in food in one form or another. Mm -hmm. Like there's, you can't become endlessly, increasingly sophisticated. There comes a point with any art or science, well, I don't know about science, but with any art at least, where I think there has to be a kind of backlash towards simplicity sometimes and people saying, you know what, like, how do we make a good hamburger? You know, I, I, honestly, I just want chips. Well, there's a level to where you can only fuss with something <laughs> right, so much. Right, right. To where you just say, damn, Dude, it's just a hamburger, okay? Right, I mean, right, lighten up. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a hamburger in my book, and, and I'm the only reason I'm worried about it <laughs> is that when I make hamburgers for myself, I make them in a way that I never would have admitted that I make them. I actually deep fry the things. Uh, and if you do it right, it, it makes a delightful burger that's not greasy, but I, I would have been afraid to share that. Yeah. Uh, even a few years ago, you know. So well, it's many kind of like, were horrified when they learned that about deep fried turkeys, but now it seems to be like people are purchasing $700 turkey deep fryers. Why they're doing that, I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. Because you can do that at a hardware store for about 50 bucks, but yeah. uh, if they want to do that, they can. Yeah, I mean, if there's a new gadget to geek out on, people will. Um, a um, couple other things. So you have a stage show, Alton Brown Live. It's coming to over Eat Thanksgiving. Your Science. Yeah, the Eat Your Eat Science, Science Tour. Uh, it's my second road show. Uh, the big difference with this one is that we're we're playing Broadway. Um, yeah. In, in November, which is a, a little bit 
Uh, just a, a wee bit terrifying. Yeah, uh, yeah you're going to be at the Barrymore, right? Yeah, at the Barrymore. Only eight performances, but it's still Broadway. And, you know, you can play a show. We've already toured this particular show uh, for seven weeks in the spring. We're changing it up a little bit for Thanksgiving. But, you know, you can play a lot of houses, and um, and you'll still be terrified by Broadway. I'm sure, yeah. So, it's intimidating. Yeah. Because, like, Hamilton's right over there, you know? <laughs> Well, I, can least, hit a, I can throw a rock and hit that. At least Lin-Manuel's not there anymore. Yeah, because that would be way too intimidating. <laughs> way too intimidating. Yeah, so, but you've got puppets and... Puppets. there's fire? Oh, yeah. There's, there's fire. No, there's not fire. Oh, you know why? You can't theater, have fire. Theater people don't like fire. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, coming up with, uh, with a, a big culinary variety show that's fireless has been the constant issue because this is our second full show because heat is a big deal you know yeah um so it's like when we did our first show the edible inevitable tour we built a gigantic easy bake oven out of lights oh, uh, awesome. eight feet tall 12 feet long it generated 1,026,000 lumens of light and would cook a large pizza in about four minutes and it was very visual and we could do it because it was lights no fire right the way that i do my shows is the first act has always got a, a giant demo that's cold and the other one is always heat so yeah interesting that's all i'll say asterisk there like it is the great regret of my childhood that I never had an easy bake oven because they were marketed all girly and so my parents wouldn't buy me one. There is a, uh, a song. Uh, <laughs> there's a song on uh, my CD uh, coming up called Easy Bake and it's a very angry punk song about how I was not allowed to have one and how when I asked Santa for one, <laughs> he had told me they were for girls and there's a whole section about that and then I finally saved enough money to get my own damn Easy Bake oven. Awesome. I've been getting back ever since. They're still so, making them? Yeah, they oh. do. They're grotesquely underpowered now and they're very difficult to hack. So, Are they still pink? Because they yeah, were they're pink. purple now. Oh, okay. They're purple because it's a little more that, natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Prince. Prince, Prince might have one. Yeah, Prince I was going to say. Yeah, makeup. right on. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm that that I'm, I'm so glad that you've made a punk song. I did. There is a punk song about to happen. Yeah, it's kind of a folk punk song, but I don't even know if that's a thing. I, I guess it is punk, now. but acoustic. I guess it is now. And actually, the last thing I want to say on the stage show front uh -huh. is that. I've had an idea for many years that maybe now we have an opportunity, maybe this will actually take flight as a result of this conversation. Benny Hanna the musical. Absolutely. People I will back that. I will back that. Things. I, will, I, I, I will back Benny Hanna the musical right now. Uh, yeah. Let me get my checkbook. I mean, I'm, I'm in. but you'd probably need fire to make it cool. Well, see, that's the problem. Fire and theaters don't mix. And good. getting insurance. My, my first show, I had one part of the show I lit a Zippo lighter. Okay. And if I and there were several cities, especially in California, where if I lit the Zippo lighter, I had to have three firemen on staff on stage. And that gets it's kind of like really for a Zippo lighter. But apparently, in the past, some theaters have burned down with a lot of people inside. That's why we have video. We do big fire things on video. Still, there must be some way to make it work for Benihana the musical. I think there is. It's just out. a matter of we got to we got to fake the fire. Sort of, like, sort of yeah. Flapping silk or something. Theater craft. Yeah. All right. Well, Alton, this yes. brings us to the second part of the show in which we Ooh. discuss surprise concepts. Now, if they surprise you and they surprise me, where did they come from? Well, so here's the deal. Yeah. So Big Think uh, yeah. does video. We have yeah. done like 10,000 little clips uh -huh. of interviews dating back to 2008 right. with just about everyone, physicists, uh -huh. whatever. Right. You know, they're chosen by the producers and they could be on three different subjects or they might have decided to make your life too easy and it's all David Chang or something. But let's see. Let's see what we get. Go for it. All right. The first one is Drew Ramsey, who is a nutritional psychiatrist on diet and depression. I'm depressed whenever I go on a diet. <laughs> I can confirm this. Okay, case yes. closed. There is a relationship between dieting and depression. <laughs> case closed, conversation over. 
For about 10 years, we've had very strong correlational data showing that, for example, when you eat poorly, your risk of depression and illnesses like depression just go up 70-80%. And when you eat a more traditional diet, like a Mediterranean diet or a Japanese diet, your risk of an illness like depression can go down by as much as 50%. So that's now led to the first clinical trial uh, that, that is just being reported, showing that a Mediterranean diet augmented with some red meat actually can treat clinical depression, major depressive disorder. And it's a very exciting moment for nutritional psychiatry. It's a time when we have more science that tells us food should really be part of the conversation when it comes to our mental health. We, we think about a lot of illnesses when we eat, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and it's always struck me that really the illness you should be worried about or the organ you should be worried about when you're eating is your brain. Because that is by far your biggest asset. It consumes more of your energy and your food than any other organ you have. And so focusing on the nutrients your brain needs guides you to a slightly different set of foods than if you focus on just things like calories or saturated fat or preventing um, something like cancer. And so it, it, it's um, an exciting moment as the data begins to catch up with, with common sense. Well, first off, there, there's, there's absolutely no way to deny the fact that what we put into our mouths affect our mental health. That is absolutely, there's nothing he said is surprising. Not, right. Nothing in that message is surprising. And I believe that from on a few levels. I believe it on a, uh, on a chemical level. Right. Uh, the, the quality and amount of specific nutrients. Um, let's face it, we evolved on this planet you know, because we knew what to pick up and eat and what to put down. You know, uh, and if you ate the wrong stuff, you died. It's, it's part of evolution. And uh, we can only really be what we eat. On a, on a strictly chemical level, got it. Absolutely understand that. However, I would also argue that the experiential part of how we absorb food matters as well. I would hazard a guess. I do not have data to support this, but I, I would imagine that if we took the same diet that was very, shall we say, mental health balanced for you know the anti-depression diet or whatever, and and. I, you and I both did that diet, and you ate alone every day in an airport terminal, and I ate with a great big Jewish family. <laughs> that our mental health that we would extract from that would be very, very different. Because, a Jewish family that's been provided. Well, what for I mean is, because I, 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 I'm not actually, not Jewish. <laughs> but I love eating with Jewish people, uh, I, 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 and I also happen to really like the food. But we would we would have very, very different outcomes, um, right. even though we had the same uh, positive nutrients. Because the the actual act of, of how we eat and where we eat and the environment we eat in and the time that we eat and what we're listening to talking to all of that right. also affects mental health so it's great to be able to look at this at a, at a nutritive level but we have to see that that is part of a of a much larger cultural issue do you find personally that in your busy entertainment life are you happy with how and where you eat like, no no which is why I'm currently depressed <laughs> no it's, it's true depression is is not alien to me. I was treated for it once when I was in culinary school. Okay. Um, number one, when I get fat, I get depressed uh, because I look dumpy and can't fit in my clothes. Two, um, I do believe that simply the kinds of food you eat can lead you into depression. But I also eat alone too often. I eat on the go too often. And I eat right now currently too much food that's prepared for me by people I do not know, uh, as opposed to by someone who loves me, right. which is a short list, um, <laughs> or myself. Uh, so I, I think that the preparation 
of food by your own hands or in a family situation, that's a factor. Right. Um, where you eat it, how you eat it, that's a factor. So yeah, right now I'm I'm not I'm not in a great place because yeah. of the work that I do and the way that I travel and my own lack of discipline and adoration for bourbon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, alcohol. I, I, alcohol should be very high up on the list of foods well, that may cause depression. Well, it, and you know what? For me, it's not that the alcohol causes depression. It's that when I drink, I tend to eat badly. Because, you know, the first thing that goes when you drink. the fats well, and the salts. The first the, thing that goes, you know, I'm a, I'm a pilot. And one of the first things that they, you know, they teach you when they're talking about alcohol and flying is, you know, the first thing that goes is your judgment. Mm -hmm. First thing that goes is your judgment. Ordinarily, I wouldn't eat this bag of potato chips, right. but I've had two, two drinks, so if I got them and eat the bag of potato chips, why? Because my judgment's gone. But, you know, I think there's also a physiological thing about that, which I don't actually understand, but, you know, the reason why brunches tend to be sort of fatty and salty, people are hungover, like, they, you know, they don't necessarily, like, that lack of judgment from the night before isn't necessarily still there. It's more like you crave those things for well, some reason. Well, I think there's a physical thing going on there as well because, you know, when your body is trying to get uh, off of a hangover, which is essentially having been poisoned, certain things really work well. Right. Nothing can get me over a hangover quicker than uh, a good greasy order of french fries. Exactly. Because the grease stabilizes, you know, and changes what the liver's doing and kind of shifts the attention uh, in the body. Um, but <laughs> so it's better. It's, so it's sort of like if you've been horribly injured in one leg, biting your biting arm. Biting your arm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or if you've been snake bit over here, badly cut the other side. You know? um, actually, it's exactly the opposite of that, but it sounds good. It does sound good, yeah. Okay, well, shall we see what the sure. next surprise video is on that note? Oh, this one is Ethan Hawke, the actor, talking about success by small achievable goals. I have thrived on one simple idea, which is placing achievable goals in front of you. I never would give myself a goal like writing a novel. I do well by saying I'm going to try and write every day for 10 days. This is when I, you know, I remember when I was first starting to teach myself to write. So I would say, I'm going to go away for 10 days. I'll go on a 10 day retreat and I'll write every day for 10 days with the goal of one short story. I'm going to come back with one short story I can hand to my friends. And usually those simple actions give you confidence. I didn't decide that I wanted to direct films. I told myself that I was going to direct a short film, something that I could afford. I took the money I made from Dead Poets Society and I made a short film. I'm, I've got a graphic novel coming out. That's kind of weird, you know, for an actor to do. And I made a documentary last year. I wrote a children's book. To a lot of people, that strikes them as weird. Or they can accuse me of being a dilettante or something like that, right? But I believe in cultivating the attitude of a student at all times. You know, if all I did was act since I was 13, I, I could do that. But it doesn't help me become a better actor. But you have to make it, you know, because failing is depressing and it makes you lose steam. And whereas if you say, like, I don't have to direct a movie by next year or anything like that, but I will have a first draft or I'll die. And OK, and invariably often you can get done sooner than that. I. <laughs> he said two things. Two different things, yeah, yeah. One, he talked about working outside of your comfort zone. Right. I could not agree more. You only define yourself by looking out on the dark edges of the map. You know, I just came out of recording a CD with music that I'd written, with me actually having to sing and play the instruments. <laughs> and why is that funny? <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> um, 
would, did that take me out of my comfort zone? Yeah, it took me out of my comfort zone to, when I, you know, designed a, a stage show that required me to play an electric guitar, which, by the way, I did not know how to play when I started. But I knew that if I was going to do a, a variety show, there had to be music. So I had to learn to do these things, and I had to put myself outside the comfort zone and risk ridicule and risk failure. So that's kind of opposed to what his initial thesis is, which is set up small, small achievable, achievable goals. goals yeah. um, small achievable goals are are boring. <laughs> And typically, um, was it uh, Stephen? Was it, was it named Burham? Uh, the guy that was the architect that uh, built the uh, the World's Fair in Chicago. Oh, I'm not um, sure. He's very well known for saying, "Make no small plans." He said, "Make no small plans." And and so I believe that you know, if you set yourself a bunch of little bitty achievable goals, what you will have with when you die is a very small achievable life. Okay. I, okay. I have, can I can I interject? I sure. Can. So I I think you're, I think that's generally right. But I think with very large goals, maybe breaking them down into smaller achievable goals. Well, don't set yourself up. Sense. You know, don't yeah. say, oh my gosh, I'm going to, by this time next year, I will have made blah, blah, blah. You've got to know, you know, Dirty Harry said, a man has got to know his limitations. <laughs> right. You've got to know your limitations. Right. You've got to know what is reasonable. Yeah. But if you make it comfortable, like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna go on a retreat for 10 days and write a short story for my friends. What the fuck? Really? <laughs> really? That's what you're going to do with 10 days? No, you go to on a retreat for 10 days and write something for yourself. I'm sorry. There's a balance between am I going to be safe? You know, it's that balance of, of risk. And if you're too yeah, risk averse, yeah. you never get anything done. Anytime that I've achieved anything that made me respect myself at all, right. there was a much higher probability of failure than success. You find yourself in that in that nook, in that shadowy land between what I know I can do, right. what I'm pretty sure I can do, and what I have no freaking idea what I can do. And if all of my goals are set for the things I don't know, then odds are I'm just going to have a life of disappointment and failure. If I do everything within that realm of I can do this, this is an achievable goal, then I will never have known what would have happened if I'd stretched. So he's right and he's wrong. I think you've got that, that a successful, I don't even to call it successful, right. but, but a life of interesting work. You have to know when to set up achievable goals and when to reach way outside the comfort zone. And, and it's finding that balance that's the real art of creative life, is to know, to, to find and to find that dark gray area between those two things and find out how to live in that, that area. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, don't you think it also comes down a little bit to your own, knowing your own personal psychology and kind of what is the line for you between taking a risk that's going to advance you creatively and trauma that's going to make you shut down for the rest of your life. I mean, I'm not saying like that you should always be cautious, but I, I feel like people grow at different rates and in different ways. Sure they do. And you can have yourself a really nice, successful, profitable career wisely playing it safe by, by figuring out exactly where the borders of your safety net are right. and never going past them. There are a lot of people that do that. Mm. And you know what? If they're happy with that, fantastic. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm not being sarcastic. No, no, I hear if, you. If that, if, but then there are people that want to see, you know, that our personal maps have the little drawing with the thing that says, you know, beyond here be dragons. Right. And there are those of us that want to see the dragons. Yeah. And maybe tame a dragon. Maybe get our asses kicked by a dragon. That's the spark, man. That's the stuff that makes lives like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know. I know that I won't quit. I know that I won't give up until I really need to. One of my few personal attributes that is useful to me is I'm a fantastically good 
self-editor. I have never done anything that sucked that I didn't know sucked first. <laughs> and I know when I can look at my own ideas and say, oh my God, that is so bad. And, and I'll come right up next to it. I will play chicken with that. Right. I will get right up close, but I'll always know when to veer off. And, and hopefully that keeps me from becoming ridiculous. That's hard. Yeah, that's actually Maybe. Hard, hard. I may be completely wrong about this, by the way, <laughs> which, you know, only, I don't, I don't know when we'll know. Um, and, and maybe I won't. I've done things that have embarrassed me later where I've like, oh, gee, I really wish I could have not done that. But at the time I was doing it, I did it better than I thought I could or maybe better than someone else might have done it. I don't know. Being your own editor is tough. Like, it's hard it's to stand tough. to not fall in love because with we the want, thing you Because made. we want to like, be liked. We want our work to be liked. We yeah. want people to say you're brilliant. We want, but you know what? Knowing how to do that, knowing how to look at your own work, your own ideas, and be the first one to cut something. Right. Some people say that that's, there's a certain amount of self-loathing that comes with being an effective artist, and, and I actually believe that. Um, I assume in any given situation that I'm the weak link, and I like to surround myself with people that will ensure it, that I'm the weak right, link. Right, right, uh, sure. Always Which working with move, better yeah. people. It is a good move. But, um, if, yeah, if, if you've got that whole thing about confidence, I don't know. Confidence is a, is a slippery fish, and, and I think that it has to be measured out. It's, a very, it's like heroin. You can get addicted to it. Um, well, it's not like heroin, because heroin, I guess, doesn't actually have any good attributes. But confidence, <laughs> confidence is a real dangerous thing, and, and I don't know that it's always good. I, I know that people respond to it. We're attracted to people who are confident. But I think that deep down, knowing where your dark recesses of unknown is, is, is really, really valuable. Yeah. Does that make any sense? No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's possible. I think of someone like W.C. Fields or something who, who knows, maybe he was an incredible self-critic as well. But like these giant, outsized, hyper-confident seeming people who also achieve great things. And maybe, maybe they just absorb that's, that's their actually, failures and, and they that, don't care. And that makes me think of, some, of something else. If that clip that you just showed me, right. Ethan Hawke, yeah. if Orson Welles had seen that, would we have Citizen Kane? <laughs> Do you think that... Michelangelo knew that he had the Sistine Chapel nailed before he went in there? Right. Mm -mm. I don't think that he did. You know, um, in, in jazz, people love to tell the story about Charlie Parker and the, the humiliations that he suffered uh, early in his career. Right. Uh, but then they fought through that adversity to, to become probably the best jazz saxophone soloist uh, that, that humankind has ever known. Right. The value of failure, the value of, okay, Orson Welles may not have failed. He actually knocked it out of the park when he made Citizen Kane. But somebody like Charlie Parker had to fail miserably before being able to bounce back to do something great. Right. So if we all live with this thing of, of not failing, of making sure you don't fail because, oh my gosh, it's depressing, well, we don't get anything great out of that. Yeah. Nothing I mean, great. I, I also have to kind of take that with a grain of salt because he's Ethan Hawke. He's done a lot of very cool and risky things over the years. And know? how many of them would you categorize as great? That's a good point. I'm not saying he didn't, but I just asked you to name one and you couldn't. Well, Dead Poets Society, he was very good in. He's, he's been a very good actor uh, in many roles. All I did, all I'm saying is that I just asked you name one that was great. great. It was five seconds of silence. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I'm not saying he isn't great. I'm saying that he's, li he's living a life that allows him to do a lot of different things. I'm like him in that. I, I, and I like, they, we call that a renaissance man a lot of times. Right. When somebody just doesn't want to settle on one thing. Could he have become the greatest actor of a generation? Maybe. But he's spent a lot of time doing other things to find out who he is. I admire that greatly. The risk aversion, and the, let's just say that all those comfortable goals would not work for me. Mm -hmm. Because you know what I would do? I would set 
gobs of comfortable goals that would allow me to simply be comfortable and confident. And I would be boring <clears throat> as shit, and I wouldn't want to even look at me in the mirror. Yeah, it can become an excuse or a way of a self-protection. But it hasn't for him. It's worked for him. Not entirely, no. I mean, he's done a million different things. He's done a million different things, and, and he's been critically acclaimed for a lot of those things. Indeed. I think it's a scale, and we all fall in a slightly different place in the scale. Well, going back to Orson Welles briefly, like, he did, in fact, fail quite a bit. I mean, he, he oh, has some monumental... He failed, he failed huge, but not, not until after Citizen Kane. Right. But studios pursuing well, him for lost hundreds of thousands of Oh my of gosh. I, I, <laughs> I, he is one of my favorite characters of history because he's one of the few people that is genuinely Shakespearean yeah. uh, in his life. The fact that he, through his theater work uh, during the, you know, the, the War Project Administration, the Mercury Theater, and then moving into Citizen Kane. Dude did a black and Macbeth the, like in The fact that he made the, the, the set in Haiti that premiered in Harlem. Just, I'm a huge fan of that period and, yeah, yeah. and what he did with the Mercury Theater and, and all of those people. And the, you know, that gave him the confidence to go blundering directly into Orson Welles, into uh, Citizen Kane, where he admitted, I just didn't know I was breaking <laughs> rules. I did not know. And of course, he had a fantastic Greg Tolan, probably, quite possibly, the greatest cinematographer who ever lived, uh, made a big difference in that. So he surrounded himself with good people. But then he failed miserably. Yeah, failed. I, I just failed wish, a lot. I, I wish Werner Herzog had been making documentaries when Orson Welles oh. was alive and could have done oh my God. the Orson Welles Could you Wells imagine, could you imagine Herzog? <laughs> Herzog making a documentary about, yes. not about Citizen Kane, but about the Magnificent yeah. Ambersons. That would have been a lot, a lot more interesting. <laughs> but, but, but you know, it, it, it's, yeah. it's funny, we're talking about filmmakers and failures. Mm -hmm. um, one of my, my favorite films is Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. And I don't love Apocalypse Now so much because I love Apocalypse Now, although it has moments of greatness. I love Apocalypse Now because Francis Ford Coppola almost lost his freaking mind. And there's that wonderful scene in the documentary that his wife, um, what Eleanor Coppola made, where he's saying, I make kill myself. I've got no, I've got no act, I've got no patience. And he is out there with all this money in the jungle going insane, uh, which of course he, that great speech at Cannes when he talked about this movie wasn't about Vietnam, this movie was Vietnam. We went into the jungle with too much money and lost our minds. And and it's that trip, you know, it's that journey. It's like, what balls? What and he a, pulled a, it off somehow. Some would say that he didn't, some would say they did. I think it's a great film. I think it's it's great on, on many levels. And, it, and it's infinitely more interesting to me than The Godfather. Right. Because it's obvious when you look closely enough that people really did almost go mad making this. I mean, right. certainly Martin Sheen went mad, <laughs> had a heart attack. Punched a mirror and was Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, when Coppola was making Apocalypse Now, did he set himself small achievable goals? Clearly to get confidence? Not. Clearly not. Clearly the dude not. built, you know, massive villages that got blown away by typhoons. And, and I think that w what that makes him is a hero. Mm. And I like heroes. Mm. No one ever became a hero answering to small achievable goals. Fair enough. That makes sense. The real difference in a hero is that a hero sets goals probably that are insane, but achieves enough of them. <laughs> right. You know, achieves enough of them to then fail beautifully. You know, Francis Ford Coppola would not get to make Apocalypse Now had he not made Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. Right. Massive Academy Awards. Amazing work not as exciting to me because he wasn't on the edge. He had the confidence, he made those films. Right. He was young, he was brash, but he did it. Surrounded himself with great people. Gordon Willis Jr., another one of the greatest cinematographers ever. Pacino was so at the top. Everybody was at the top of their game. But is that heroic? No, Apocalypse Now is heroic. And, and I think that there's something in human evolution ever since 
you know, Greek tragedy, we need heroes because we constantly need to be reminded that the uncomfortable is achievable, and we need that. And that actually is what is the opposite of depressing, is seeing that somebody can, like, throw themselves into the abyss and yep. come out with something, yep. you know. And sometimes we fail, and sometimes we make it, but, you know, it's the great doing of it. And so I think that the, the small comfortable goals could get you through on a day-to-day -day basis, but as a lifetime philosophy, nah. All right. We went on way too long. About no, that. we went we went we went deep with that one. That was we did. awesome. Let's we, we, we see, let's see where the last one deep. takes us. All right. Um, let's see what we have next. Oh, this is cool. This will be interesting. This is Alison Gopnik. Mm. Uh, she was on the podcast. She's a developmental psychologist. Uh, I've heard under, of her, yeah, uh, from from Berkeley. It's on parenting and what kids need most. Are you, are you a parent? I am indeed. Are, well, yeah, actually, let's. I am. Are you? Yes. How, how, how many? I have one. I have a, a daughter who's getting ready to turn 17. Wow. I have one boy. He's, he's eight. So Great age. 17. Unimaginable. Yes. And her the mom. The distance from her, here to there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we live very close to each other and we're very close. Her mom and I um, divorced last year. Uh, so that's been a bit of an adjustment. But um, yeah. I'm very, very into my kid. That's and she's almost too smart to talk to me. <laughs> is she in college, on her way to college? She's on her, on her way. She's only a junior in high school. She voluntarily decided to take the SAT on a LARC last year and missed two questions, and it pissed her off. All, all but two. And it didn't count because she was only in the 10th grade. <laughs> That's what I'm stuck with. Formidable. Right? And she's also Formidable. Um, like six feet tall and blonde and beautiful. So it's like... The world is her oyster, yeah. it would seem. Which is, I, I hate her just <laughs> I love her, but I hate her a little bit, too. She's the kind of girl that wouldn't talk to me when I was in high school. <laughs> All right, so Parenting Isn't a Job, It's a Relationship is the title of this Alison Gopnik Go. Video. One of the problems that we always have is that the kind of culture in which, say, children evolved is hard to replicate in our current culture. So. I always say sort of ideally what you'd have is a six to one ratio where you'd have six grown-ups taking care of each child. And maybe a better way of putting it is that you'd have a community of, of parents, you'd have a community of caregivers. The children are there as part of that community. It's not as if anybody is sitting there and doing a bunch of special things that are just directed at the child. So the vision that we have from school, there's someone who's got this special responsibility of shaping the education of the child, is the vision that is often imported into being a parent. So there's some special set of things you should do, some you know, flashcards or video or something other than what you would normally do. That's the thing that you are supposed to do to educate the child. And what the data, the research shows, is that children are learning from just observing and participating in the everyday things that people are doing in an incredibly subtle and powerful way. I mean, the irony is that the unconscious things that you do when you're, in, when you're interacting with children are much more likely to shape and affect the way they think than any of the things that you actually consciously decide to do. And I think we have some lovely models for the way that for example, my, you know, my personal favorite is cooking, so my grandchildren come in and cook with me. Now the question is, what do we do now to try to, when that's no longer true, we're no longer growing up in a village, what can we do now to kind of recreate that situation? I'm so surprised when I look at the world that my daughter, Zoe, has grown up in or been raised in compared to the way that um, I was raised. 
it concerns me greatly. Um, I was not raised perfectly. My father died when I was 10. I don't have a great relationship with my mother, and I'm a loner. Uh, I'm almost incapable of healthy long-term <laughs> relationship. <laughs> so we're doomed. Despite the <laughs> were you um, an only child? By the uh, I was until yeah. my mom started remarrying, and then I had multiple groups of step uh, siblings. But the important thing about, yeah. about my upbringing was that um, although I was born in Los Angeles, um, my, my parents very early moved back to North Georgia, where they were from, when I was only seven. And so my summers, you know, there was a lot. This was back in the days of, here's a sandwich, here's your bicycle, see you at dinner time. Right. And we vanished into the world. And out in that world, we learned certain things. We learned that things would hurt you. And there was a lot of blood, and there was a lot of bandages, and they were broken bones. But you learn to negotiate a physical world in a way that made us self-reliant. Right. We're not managed. We were not strapped into five-point harnesses. We weren't even buckled into the back seat. <laughs> we rode around in the back of pickup trucks. We rode on motorcycles when we were nine. It is a wonder that any of us survived. But it turned me into a person that I, I am far more self-reliant. Um, I know how to get myself around. Um, I can be dropped probably just about any place on planet Earth and not dissolve into a puddle of goo. My daughter, on the other hand, who is brilliant, still can't really find her way around. She drives now, but she doesn't have an interior map because she was always buckled into a back seat and strapped in with a DVD player. She didn't observe. Right. She got what we gave her, what we attempted to teach her. And some of those lessons took really, really well. My, her mom and I realized when Zoe was three that she had actually taught herself how to read, but she wasn't letting us know because she was afraid we'd stop reading to her. She was already reading faster than I could by the time she was six. She had kind of taken over that way, but she was raised in such a protective way that the only thing, there was no observation, really, because every activity was planned. Nothing just happened. This village concept, right, which is so important, especially when, when you talk about cooking and food preparation, is huge. Um, but parents won't teach their kids or cook around their kids because they're afraid their children will be hurt. I'm gonna get burned, yeah. I'm gonna get burned, I'm gonna get cut. You know, when I first started teaching my daughter, who is not a big cook, um, how to, to cut, I put down a box of Band-Aids and I said, there's my way and this way. And it made a real impact because visually she knew what a Band-Aid box was. <laughs> she knew what that was going to do. But it's funny because I didn't just have her around when I was cooking. And because cooking for me was always work, it was always R&D, it was always a job, you know what, she didn't absorb much of it. And she's gotcha. not very interested in it. <laughs> she's not. Yeah, I She doesn't cook with me. I don't cook with my kid either. And I don't know why that happened either. I love to cook. I think I got afraid he was gonna cut himself. Yeah. yeah. So somewhere along the line, we got to where we weren't supposed to let kids just happen with us in life and let them see what we were doing, the right. village approach. And it all became presentation. It all became, we all started Martha stewarding our children. Well, first I've got to make the gravel and then I'm going to, you know, make the air. Right. Where explicit instruction. It was explicitly presented to them instead of them being allowed to observe it. Right. Um, and the truth is, is, is there's, you know, life doesn't come on flashcards. And the positive lessons that you could give your child is probably a lot more. And you're a musician. I play music. You play music. It's just have your kid around while you play music. You're not trying to teach them music, right? right. You're simply including them in that activity. And I think that they absorb a heck of a lot more from that passive teaching, which is experiential rather than presentational. That's right. That's right. And a, and a lot of, I think, what we are, what we do communicate to our children is 
the anxiety, the the neuroses, oh gosh, like the neuroses. that that we don't that we're not trying to. I mean, even if we stand there and say you must take risks and you must have adventures in your life, like so much of what we're doing is communicating, be afraid. Well, no, telling is be afraid, and it, <laughs> and it's be afraid because um, I cannot possibly allow my daughter to walk up the street to see a friend because twelve pedophiles will attack her right um, along that along that way. Well, guess what? There have always been monsters. And I've heard that, in fact, statistically, that like it, we are mistaken in our belief that that is increasing, even in urban areas. Paranoia is not a good parent. Paranoia no. is not a good parent. No. When I was a kid, and I'm 54, the bicycle was the single most important appliance because the bicycle was freedom. Right. Although my daughter learned how to ride a bike, it never became a tool of expression because she was never allowed to take it anywhere because no place is safe. No place is safe. That's right. And that's what we get from, from being part of the tech generation that we're in and, and the internet generation and the, the content generation is that it is not safe to let a kid do anything. I can't remember when my daughter was first allowed to mm. walk to a friend's house. So imagine the discovery, the self-discovery that she's been robbed of because we were so busy trying to keep her, quote, safe, end quote. Interestingly, also, when you think about kind of all the tech tools and the new cool apps that are supposed to help us, you know, and even things like food delivery services that are supposed to help us cook and plan mm -hmm. meals and so on, everything that we're doing now, we're doing the same kind of explicit hand-holding and instruction to ourselves that we're doing to our kids. Yeah, and we're, we're, that is exactly true, which means that basically I have made a living off of being an opportunistic parasite. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have simply jumped in and filled the gap where parenting stopped doing it. Um, you know, which is why my grandmother, before she passed away, still could not believe I made TV shows on a network about cooking. She's like, who would want to watch that? <laughs> who would watch that? I was like, people are gonna watch that. She's like, I don't know. She didn't watch it? Your she was on a show with me, but she died. Oh yes, that's right, first uh, season. She was first right, season, yeah. she did a biscuit show with me and we had great fun and then she passed away very soon after that. But she would just shake her head and, and she could <laughs> not imagine a culture where it would be popular to watch other people cook. Yeah, we, we are a culture maybe of voyeurs in a way. Well we are, yeah, most certainly voyeurs, but we also have a completely different mindset of what passes as entertainment. For sure. And I mean, going back to what we were saying about the Ethan Hawke video, I mean, how are you going to put yourself into dangerous risk-taking territory if your entire culture is telling you to sit back and Be watch other people do I things on the internet? Exactly. <laughs> or that we've made our kids so safe that the idea of risk is, is alien. You can't suddenly turn to somebody coming out of college with you having protected them with five-point <laughs> harnesses and blah, 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 and say, okay, it's time to take a chance. Well, what the hell is that? Wonder, What's a chance? Should we blame the, the attorneys? Is it, is it litigation oh, that's done this to us? There's blame enough for everybody. <laughs> you know, there's, there's blame when, when culturally you can't, you, you can't spank a child anymore because it's perceived as abuse. Child abuse. I, I have never spanked my child. She didn't really need it. She was more petrified by having us be ashamed of her. I mean, a look would always do it with her. Um, and she never had discipline problems. But I got the crap beat out of me. And sometimes for better and sometimes... Um, <laughs> it worked in a couple of cases. It, it was proper and right and made an indelible impression. And then the other times it just pissed me off and was probably not judiciously and wisely administered. But the truth is, is we don't let e each other raise kids anymore. Uh, we don't have... Um, a village. We have a bunch of people pointing fingers at each other. 
That's right. I'll share a story quickly before we, as we wind up. I went to Turkey. My wife is Turkish. I, oh, I didn't to, know that. Yeah, and I went to visit her. The first time I went to Turkey to visit her, we went near the Mediterranean somewhere, a little town. I think it was Kosh or something along the Mediterranean coast. And we went out on a day cruise on one of these teak boats, mm -hmm. highly flammable. Highly flammable. Boat. Wood boat, wooden boat. Yeah, yeah. Run by this guy who had obviously been running it for 30 years. He goes out on the, the cruise. He opens a hibachi. Mm -hmm. He takes a hefty bag, like a heft, thick plastic hefty bag full of charcoal, puts it on top of the hibachi. There's like six of us sitting within one foot of it on this teak boat. He dumps gasoline all over it, and he lights it on fire. And I was you like- You left the charcoal in the bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. He didn't even take it but out of the bag. The plastic is smoking, and we're all inhaling the fumes on the, on the teak boat. And I'm like, Dorothy, you ain't in Kansas anymore. No. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, he would be shut down six ways from Wednesday um, yeah. for, for that. But, 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 like, in that same country, I was able to wander around these, like, ancient caves in Cappadocia without people kind of telling me not to look or mm -hmm. do this or that, you know? Mm -hmm. We were able to rent a scooter, which we couldn't have done in New York, and go travel through the, you know, wilderness. Like, it was refreshing, I thought. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, you're going to be risk-adverse. You have to admit one very simple fact. People die. Indeed. That is the casualty. Children, You're going to lose some Children folks. fall to their death. Um, kids, you know, put their eyes out with BB guns. They drown uh, people, in the lake skating. People drown. Yeah. This happens. And so we, you we so... you got to be willing to accept that. Yeah. Obviously. As a culture, you got to be willing to say, look, there, there will be collateral damage. And there will be little boxes going into the ground. And that's a math that it's tough for us to do. Like once, you know, people think about that, it's, it's you know, a little tough. You know, a hundred years ago, you had five kids knowing two wouldn't make it to puberty. Right. Accepted. And in some cultures, children are not actually considered human beings until they reach a certain age. Oh, yeah? Because the chances that they're going to die is so high that it's better to not actually think of them as humans. They're larval. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, yeah, no, because I it's simply, the math is simply against them. Right. You know? And right. so it's only once they become five, seven, eight, I don't know what the ages are uh, in these various cultures. They're, they're not even humans yet. So, you know, we either treat every precious snowflake like it's got to be protected no matter what to the potential detriment of everyone else or somebody's going to die. There are going to be eyes put out with BB guns. Interesting. Interesting. These are, these are the trade-offs. Alton Brown, it has been really great talking to you today. Thank Thanks you so for much having for me. being on Think Again. I've really you enjoyed this conversation. You got me thinking. You got me thinking. And, and vice versa. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again with Alton Brown. Do me a favor. If you like the show, if you're new to it, or if you've been listening for a while and you haven't done it yet, Go on over to iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or Podcatcher or any one of the other 20 million listening services that you might be using and rate and or review the show. It means a lot to us and it makes a very big difference in terms of the visibility or audibility of the show to all the people out there in the world. I want more people to hear it and if you like it, I guess maybe you do too. Next week, we are joined by science writer James Glick, who is here to talk about surprise things, but also his new book about the history of time travel. See you then.
save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.